I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. Today's episode is Rendering Unconscious 100th episode. So I wanted to take a moment to thank you all for being here. A very special thank you to our Patreon patrons. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast and my other work. I couldn't have done this without you. Thanks to all the listeners. At this point, Rendering Unconscious Podcast has over 50,000 listens, which I think is really phenomenal. And I'm so happy to have this platform and to be able to spread psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic theory out into the greater culture and community. So thank you all for your support. And for this special 100th episode, I have a very special guest, Andrew McLuhan of the McLuhan Institute, because the medium is the message. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, from Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. So then, we are celebrating 100 episodes of Rendering Unconscious. Thank you for being here. Well, congratulations. Uh, I'm honored to be here, and thanks for having me. What a a wonderful library you have. Thank you. It was the first thing I did when I moved into this house. I was like, we need walls of books. Right? Yeah, nice. Cool. So what do you want to start with? Um, Well, we can start with libraries. Okay. Um, I'm, uh, this is a rarity actually, this, uh, the space that I'm in has very few books in it right now. Uh, normally I'm at uh, my office at home, which is my dad's old office, um, which has 6,000 or so books uh, in book- bookshelves around, you know, through the whole space. Um, but what it doesn't have is a very good internet connection. So um, part of the reason uh, I'm really enjoying this space is it has uh, a high-speed internet connection, so it makes it uh, easier to do interviews and things like this. Um, But I'm fascinated with all sorts of libraries. Um, What's in your library? Mostly books on, well, this side is my side, so it's mostly books on psychoanalysis, 
of philosophy and art and some literature. And then there's some occult stuff and tarot, divination. Mm, yeah, lots of art. And Carl, he loves magico anthropology, he calls it. So he loves studying the magical practices of all different cultures. So we have a lot of books on that. Amazing. Wow. Yeah, I'm fascinated by people's libraries. You know, they, uh, they tell you a lot about a person. Um, it's more than just, a, you know, a collection of books. The, the sum total of the parts can reveal a lot, um, but also how you treat your library. You know, I, I don't, I was about to say I don't trust people, but you can tell a lot by people by the way, even the way they organize their books. There's this um, modern trend I've seen where people arrange their books by color, by hue, you know, uh, which is very interesting, but it tells you a lot about the person. <laughs> How do you uh, find anything? And then, <laughs> you know, what you can tell about a person by how they treat the books in their library. Uh, I'm a big fan of the annotated library because uh, I like to see, you know, um, I used to think, I think we all used to think, many people, that uh, a book or a work of art is, is finished when it's printed or when you stop painting. But of course, that's only the beginning, you know. Uh, and there's a lot of life left in a book uh, when it gets to you or when it goes from you to the next person. And that's, uh, that's my current fascination is the, uh, the afterlife of books. That's exciting. I just finished a book and it's true because it feels like to me, it's like I've been working on these ideas for like eight years. So I'm pretty done with it. But then of course I handed in the manuscript, I guess in March and I just got back like the final proofs this morning to like finally read through. And then I also got back a podcast I was on like also back in the spring where I was talking about themes from the book. I also got that to this morning. So then having them both come at the same time, I was like, oh, I'm excited about this. And it's life is just beginning. Yeah. Well, and then there's the, the other side of that is, um, you know, I'm a little fascinated by this idea that all the cells in our body regenerate every seven years or so, they say. So if you think about it, you're a completely different person every seven years. And I think that goes cognitively as well. Um, so it's, it's always interesting. A book that's worth reading once is worth reading twice, you know. And I think when you, when you let a certain amount of water pass under the bridge of your mind, that it's worth looking at things again. I know this was um, the case for, for Marshall McLuhan and my father, Eric, that um, they revisited books. Um, and that's one of the great things about an annotated library is when you see them revisiting um, years later. Um, and you find not only things that you missed the first time around, but because you're a different person by then, your experience is necessarily different. So, you know, mental maturity uh, means you, it's not that you miss things the first time around, it's that you weren't ready for them the first time around. So I find, I find that fascinating as well. I love that. What were some of their favorite books? Um, well, this has to be the favorite title. 
does that come up backwards for you or can you read yeah. it? Yeah, Finnegan's Lake. Yeah, so this is, this is my copy, which my father gave me. And maybe it says a lot about me that there are zero annotations in it. <laughs> I, uh, I, haven't, um, I haven't managed to wrestle with this, this text yet. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite there yet. I'm still soaking in the brine of Finnegan's Wake, if you will. Uh, but Marshall had uh, several copies. Um, and it's incredible because he would, he would write so many notes in the front and end pages, in the margins, that he literally ran out of room to write a single more, anymore. So he'd buy a new copy and start again. Uh, and there are, there are half a dozen copies of Finnegan's Wake of his that are completely full of notes and papers stuck in between. And uh, funnily enough, uh, a friend of his, John Culkin at Fordham University, um, for a present had two copies made uh, bound in green leather with gold stamping. And one was for Marshall McLuhan and the other for Eric McLuhan. And they, they're three volumes each because he interleaved every page with a blank page. So there are blank pages between every, every two pages. Um, and funnily enough, he did that so that Marshall would be able to take a lot of notes. And of course, Marshall made no notes in them. <laughs> Get a sense of his personality. Yeah, but um, behind, behind Joyce and Finnegan's Wake, um, other books, Finnegan's Wake and Joyce were definitely the most quoted works for him. Um, after that would probably be Shakespeare um, and then the Bible, actually. Um, Shakespeare, again, obvious because Marshall was a literary uh, a teacher, professor of literature. Um, the Bible, partly because he was uh, very Catholic, but also because he used, um, he used the Bible uh, for perceptual training. And it's a really neat thing that he had um, all sorts of copies of the Bible in different languages. And when he would travel, he'd, uh, he'd take one from the hotel room, he would ask if he could, and they usually said yes. So he'd take one in different languages if he didn't have it. And the reason is that, um, aside from being the best-selling book of all time, um, Editors are very, very careful to have consistency along languages of translation. So it makes a very good book if you want to study languages, because you'll know that there will be very little variance from uh, language to language. So he had a, a habit or a practice in the morning of reading his Bible in a few different languages. And that was a way of him uh, killing two birds with one stone, I guess, you know, getting his Bible reading in, but also um, the kind of perceptual training that um, each different language affords, because, you know, every language has words peculiar to that language, and they give you um, a bit of a glimpse into the experience of the person who speaks that language. Uh, because, of course, we can only communicate what we have words or, or the ability to communicate. So, um, that was the reason why he had so many Bibles. What about you? What are, what are your go-to books? Oh boy, that's a good question. I mean, psychoanalytically, it has to be Freud because 
I love Freud. Yeah. I, I, I said, yeah, I have flirtations with other theorists and I get into them for a while and then I always end up going back to Freud. And I actually tried to start, well, I, we did it for like two years. We started a study group um, where I wanted to read Freud from the very beginning with my friend Steven Reisner. And we read like every other week together for like two years, for a while. And we only got up to anaphasia, which was like, we didn't, which wasn't even up to the, where the standard edition begins. So it was like all his neurological papers and all his papers about working with cocaine and all of these kinds of things. And we read his letters that he was writing at the time when he was like starting to develop his ideas. And then when his official psychoanalytic body of work started, we were, we were like tired by then. I actually thought of doing um, a similar thing with um, with McLuhan work, starting uh, reading groups and maybe taking one book at a time. Uh, but even then, you know, when I think about it, you'd be at it for you could be at it for years. I mean, so the uh, the McLuhan Bible, understanding media, um, is so so dense and so packed. I remember I had a conversation with a friend of mine one time and. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I read Understanding Media in two days. I said, you read it in two days? Are you kidding me? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, okay, well, let's, let's look at the first page. So um, I opened it up, skipped the introduction, although I recommend the introductions, and started the first page of uh, the first chapter, which is the meeting is the message. And we talked for two hours about that page. Um, and I think he went in and reread it a little more slowly because... Um, the the language is so poetic. It's it's so distilled down to essence. Um, every word almost is used with such care and deliberation that um, you can't just read it cover to cover. You know, it's a book you have to put down uh, and walk away and think about it and let it soak in, kind of like Finnegan's Wake, um, and then come back to it. And I'm constantly uh, rereading it. And actually, um, I've started reading, I have um, an edition, I think the third edition uh, hardcover, which Marshall had given to his wife, Corinne. Um, but then later, he had taken it back and used it and filled it with annotations. Uh, back when, um, in the early 70s, uh, he was approached by the publisher to do a 10th anniversary edition of Understanding Media. Um, and so rather than just add a new introduction, he really went at it. And I have uh, the book, which I believe he used um, to go through it again. So wow. each chapter heading has all these notes on it toward um, a new edition. This was a project he called UMR, or Understanding Media Revisited, Revised. Um, it turned into such a big project that um, the publisher said, well, this isn't a new edition, this is a different book, um, which it was. Uh, and Marshall died uh, before it could be published. Um, they, him and my father, Eric, worked on it for several years um, and began to call it, after a couple of years, Laws of the Media. And it was published as Laws of Media, the New Science in 1988. Um, but it's really fascinating to look at um, understanding media, understanding media revised, and then laws of media. And 
I mean, I've got so many projects to do with McLuhan work, but one great project would be taking these, these books and looking at them all together. In fact, um, I think that there's a really interesting project in finding where understanding media revised ceased being understanding media revised and turned instead into laws of media and looking at that project there. Um, of course, there's also a fourth work, which is um, before understanding media, understanding media came about because Marshall was hired uh, in 1960 by the National Association of Educational Broadcasters in the US to develop a curriculum for high school students for understanding media, um, which he did. And he delivered a report called the Report on the Project in Understanding New Media. Um, that report is fascinating and deserves to be published. Um, but that's sort of a proto-understanding media. So Marshall took that and basically um, almost in, by way of doing cut-ups, you know, kind of threw it up in the air and put it back together poetically and that became uh, understanding media. Well, say more, say more about the cut-ups. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know, I don't know if he ever used um, that method as such, but um, the distant early warning card deck is, is kind of like that. Um, he called it a, a contemporary I Ching. And um, uh, there's instructions that come with it that tell you um, is, is directed toward businessmen and managers. And it says, um, you know, think of whatever your hang up is. You know, this was 1969, so it was your hang up. Right. Um, and, and pick out a card and, and see if it delivers any um, insight into your hangup. <laughs> the stripper puts the audience on by taking them off. Ooh, I like that card. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Can I get it? A deck like this? What's that? Is this deck available? Yeah, it is. Um, if you go to uh, the McLuhanInstitute.com, there's um, a button in the menu that says shop uh, and they're available in the shop. Um, they were, they came about from uh, something called the Dewline Newsletter. And uh, Marshall was invited to teach. He won the Albert Schweitzer Chair of the Humanities at Fordham University for the 67-68 scholastic year. And um, while he was there in New York City, he met a lot of people, did a lot of things. Um, he began, uh, he got involved with a guy called Eugene Schwartz, uh, something called the Human Development Corporation. And with Eugene Schwartz, they started a thing called the Dewline Newsletter. Um, and Dewline stands for Distant Early Warning. Um, the Dewline was a, a system of satellite, uh, sorry, not satellite, uh, radar installations across the top of North America that were supposed to warn when the Russian missiles were coming over the Arctic. So this was, you know, the height of uh, Cold War, the Red Scare and all that. Um, they're since decommissioned. So um, Marshall started this thing called the Dewline Newsletter, which was supposed to, you know, warn of the effects of technologies before they happen. You can see the analogy. Um, so it was, it was marketed toward business people um, and I have, my father edited it, and I have actually the subscription rolls. 
pardon me, and there's thousands of people that subscribe to this. Um, it was supposed, it was kind of a proto-blog. It was supposed to be the, the thoughts fresh from Marshall McLuhan's head, faster than you could publish in a book, um, you know, a direct-to-mail newsletter. Um, of course, the reality didn't quite live up to the idea, and it was notoriously behind production, um, and it went just over two um, issues, uh, with I think 12 numbers in each. Um, but while it ran, it was a really cool thing. They spent a lot of money on design, so it was visually very appealing. Um, the format went from, you know, letter size to little booklets to um, audio uh, discs to, um, for one of the editions, they sent out this, uh, this deck of cards. Um, so it was uh, volume one issue, June, September of uh, 69, I think, was, was the issue that this came with. Um, and they must have, you know, got a deal on printing a couple thousand uh, more than they actually needed because there were several boxes left over from the initial print run. And that's what I sell in the bookshop. Um, the Dewline newsletter itself is a really fascinating artifact. Um, it's very hard to find. It's, it's very difficult to get copies. I've looked into reissuing it because I think that would be a lot of fun, but to reissue it like one for one to duplicate the styles and the methods of production is just cost prohibitive. Um, you know, you'd have to charge a lot or a lot of people would have to sign up for it to make sense. Um, but then to publish it all in one big volume uh, kind of defeats the purpose of it. So I don't know, maybe some publisher out there uh, wants to take a chance on it sometime and we can get it back out there. That would, that would be fun. It's but amazing I, that those are the original cards. Oh yeah, 1969, the, um, the ones that I sell, Um, the ones that I sell are, are shrink-wrapped in plastic, um, and, you know, they smell like the 1960s. <laughs> Actually, that sounds kind of gross, doesn't it? But, no, uh, it sounds great, like old books. Right. <laughs> well, and that's the other thing, that's another thing about, about a library, um, which uh, you can't get with PDFs or with e-books, is, you know, your PDF reader smells like hot technology your library smells like, um, like thoughts, like processes, you know? Um, I love the, the multi-sensuousness of a library. Uh, walking into my dad's old office, um, you know where you are, you know? There's a sense of um, potential in a library that um, I don't think you can get from holding a piece of hardware. Well, maybe, maybe some people can, I don't know. I've never had an e-reader, so um, I really can't say, but maybe, do you read a lot on the screen, Vanessa? I can't read on the screen. I have uh, to print everything out if it's a PDF or like when okay. people have sent me their books to read to like do a quote for or something, I have to print things out. I can't read on the screen. It just gives me a headache. I know. Yeah, I, I definitely prefer not to. And, same when people want me to, to read their book, I say, well, can you send me a print copy? Because, you know, not to be um, uh, precious about it, but uh, it really is a completely different experience. Um, it's hard to, to flip through 
a, a PDF or e-reader the same way you flip through a book. You know, there's um, there's an there's bits of magic, you know, in a book or in in a library for that matter. Your library looks very well organized. And very yeah, there's also this wall. I have to now. I have to show you. Oh, <laughs> how about that? <laughs> it's a real thing. Um, the the library in our office isn't quite so neat and tidy, and actually I need to, to do something about that. But there's there's something about um, you know browsing in a library which I really love. And that's something I've missed since the COVID situation. I haven't been to my library, my local library since, you know, February. Um, and I miss that. And our local libraries are actually amazing. Uh, and they'll, they'll pick books for you and leave them in a bag by the door and you can pick them up. But I like to browse, you know? Yeah, you uh, find unexpected treasures. Well, exactly. You know, you, uh, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but I often do. You know, you browse around the stacks and something attractive looks there and you pull it in and look at it and well, maybe that's not interesting, but you look on the back and you see who's written a blurb about it and you think, oh, who's that person? So you go look up their book and oh, that looks better. Okay. You know, um, there's, there's that element of chance and happenstance and I would say magic, which um, exists in the library, but not necessarily somewhere else. Uh, I know, I know for myself, going through my dad's library, um, it often feels like I'm not picking the books, but the books are picking me, if you know what I mean. Yep. Or not, not just the books, but uh, the papers or the files, you know, I'll see a file folder sitting somewhere and I'll pick it up and look at it. And it's just uncanny how it seems the perfect thing for that moment, you know? Uh, yeah. There's good things about libraries. I hope we can get back in them soon. Yeah, for sure. And we're, we're big fans of magical thinking in our house. And Carl likes to also like say that osmosis happens. So just like being surrounded by the books, like you get more information. And also like say, if we have like a book project or paper we want to work on, we'll like take books that we want to use and like put them together so that they can all like hang out. Before, before we like work on that paper or I do anyway. That's a great idea. Yeah. I'm gonna actually, that's funny because I've had these books are, are here sitting on my desk together. Mm -hmm. So that they're already starting to create in an osmo osmotic way. Huh. Thanks Vanessa, I'm gonna use that. <laughs> that's fun. You could have a lot of fun with that. Mm -hmm. I often wonder, um, you know, I've, I've speculated on that uh, for Marshall. Um, a lot of what he did was um, making connections that authors didn't necessarily make themselves. And in that way, kind of um, forcing these authors into dialogues that they may not necessarily want to have. <laughs> so it's, a, it's an interesting thought to bring multiple authors into dialogue or conversation uh, with each other by bringing, bringing their books together. That's, exactly. that's really, I'm going to give that a try. Mm -hmm. You get it. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> we should talk about the McLuhan Institute and all the amazing work that you're doing. Sure. What do you want to know? 
Well, tell us about it so that people can check it out. Yeah. Um, well, the McLuhan Institute, um, I started it three years ago. And um, I started it basically because it didn't exist, you know, and it felt, I was at a time in my life where um, I had a couple very young children. I was about to turn 40. Um, I'd been working with my dad kind of on a part-time basis for about 10 years. And I just felt like I was at one of those crossroads in my life where, you know, I had to decide which way I was gonna go. Um, and I definitely loved McLuhan work. Um, if I could, I would have been doing it full time by that point. Um, but it's hard to make a go of it uh, financially. Um, and I had a young family. So I felt like I, I had to make a decision that if I was going to do anything serious with McLuhan studies, I wasn't getting any younger and I had to do it. Um, and if I wasn't, then fine. So I decided that I loved it too much to just walk away. The other thing was I have a lot of hobbies and interests. Um, I write poetry. I study all sorts of other subjects. Um, I'm really into music. I used to play in a punk rock band. Um, you know, drawing, writing, playing music, hanging out with my family. There are only so many hours in a day or days in a week or weeks in a month or months in a year. And I felt like um, the McLuhan thing uh, had to take up either a lot of time or no time for it to be worth anything. So I decided that I loved it too much to let it go. Um, and that if I was going to do it, then I had to go all in um, and give it everything I had. And if it worked, if I managed to uh, find a way to make it sustainable for myself and my family, then amazing. Um, and if it didn't, then, you know, okay, at least I would know that I gave it my best and I could, you know, sleep at night and move on. Um, but I felt that it would work, mainly because it had to work. The thing is, um, you know, when Marshall died, uh, the Center for Culture and Technology, which he started at the University in Toronto, closed. Well, it closed before he died. Um, and although it reopened some years later, it was never the same. Marshall had uh, literally and figuratively left the building. Um, and my father uh, continued working um, through the 80s and the 90s and the thousands till he died in 2018. Um, on his own, in his office, plugging away. Um, he didn't really care much for, for the spotlight at all. He'd rather just be working and getting work done, studying and discovering and reporting. Um, but so I felt that there needed to be a place to continue the McLuhan work in the McLuhan tradition um, because Marshall started something different. You know, uh, not that he, he invented a field single-handedly, but he was definitely one of the founders of a specific type of media study, which concentrates on the effects of technologies first, um, placing the content or the uses of technology to the side uh, and studying what they do. Um, and 
that, that is a very special thing. And it's still uh, kind of a niche uh, way of media study. And um, my father continued working in this tradition as he'd been taught by his father. But um, I was, I looked around and I was afraid that one day he would die and there was nothing in place to carry on. So I came up with this idea of the McLuhan Institute that would continue McLuhan studies in the McLuhan tradition uh, with the, the goal of eventually having it be a nonprofit and, you know, down the road I could step down and other people could carry on because um, as long as we continue to innovate uh, and make these extensions of ourselves, um, we need to understand them and we need to have the tools to understand them. And even better, it would be great if we applied these tools before we released these things into society and had to deal with, uh, you know, the side effects because the side effects always outweigh the, the main effects, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's the side effects that you have to contend with. So I started the McLuhan Institute for this uh, three years ago. Um, and it's going really well. In fact, I can't, it's kind of hard to believe how far I've come since, you know, um, less than a year after I started, started the Institute, uh, my father died um, and I was left to do it alone. Uh, and that took a while to grapple with, but um, just three years later, I've managed to, um, you know, with the help and uh, support of my wife and family, um, we've bought my parents' place, sold our old place, um, so that my dad's library, uh, and it's in a separate building, that's all safe. And after my dad died, I wasn't, we weren't sure what would happen with his books, um, and not just his books, but everything he'd collected over the years, pardon me, which is a, a very large collection of things from Marshall and his mother, his wife, Corinne's life. Um, because, you know, 6,000 books plus, you know, all these other artifacts are not going to move into our house. Like, there's, <laughs> there's just no way. So um, if we weren't able to buy and save that house and property, uh, the books would go to another institution. Um, and the University of Toronto's Fisher Rare Book Library, which houses Marshall's uh, annotated library, offered to take on Eric's and put it side by side with Marshall's, which was extremely generous because, you know, it's a, it's a sad fact that most academic libraries, um, professors who pass on and their thousands and thousands of books um, are left for their descendants to deal with. They end up in yard sales or university book sales. There simply aren't the resources to properly house and take care of them. Uh, so the Fisher Library offering to put Eric's books alongside Marshall's is very significant um, as a financial commitment, but it's also a recognition of um, the value of that library. Um, I spent almost two years uh, documenting an inventory in Marshall McLuhan's library, which um, if you go to inscriptorium.wordpress.com, um, the link is also on the McLuhaninstitute.com, uh, you'll see that I made blog and blog and blog posts of the amazing things I discovered doing that. Um, that library of around 6,000 books uh, was named to UNESCO's Memory of the World as a significant cultural artifact um, for the world uh, a couple of years ago now. 
So for Fisher Library to say that Eric McLuhan's library deserves to be with that artifact kind of brings it under that umbrella for level of importance. And um, I, I believe it is the case. I mean, I know myself that I've, I've been learning so much going through because I'm now documenting Eric's library as well, um, which you can see weekly on my YouTube channel. Uh, I've, I've found how much, you know, it's a really weird thing to go, to be following in your father's or grandfather's footsteps through their books. Um, because it literally feels like I'm, I'm walking with them through their, their journey of, of knowledge and understanding. It's, it's a very strange thing, you know, uh, to see yourself following in the ages. And especially for me, um, I look through a book and at the front it said my father's written that he bought this in Dallas in 1982 or um, you know, in Toronto in 1984. And I think about where I was in my life at that time. And uh, it's, it's a strange kind of time travel uh, that there's also something very magical uh, happening there. So to bring this back to the McLuhan Institute, uh, what I'm trying to do with the McLuhan Institute is to um, conserve and preserve the past because um, it is important to know where things came from uh, and to have a record of that. But um, the McLuhan Institute isn't simply a monument uh, to people gone. It's um, an active center. So my, my particular focus is in mining the past for the practical tools which we can use to understand technology today and to grapple with it tomorrow. Um, and I think I'm in a unique position to do this because uh, I'm not an academic. Uh, I graduated high school and didn't want to go to university. I never did. Um, the only time I've been to university has been to teach or to speak or traveling with my dad. And um, it's not that I have anything against universities. They're amazing places and I have a lot of respect for the institutions and, and the academics within them. Some of them are are unsung saints, frankly. Um, but it's, you know, that's one very small part of the world and it's a very closed system. And the rest of the world, uh, you and I and everyone else out here are living day to day, um, immersed in these technological environments with very little to help us grapple with what it means in our lives. Um, and the fact is that um, we don't have to um, be bystanders or casualties. Um, I think there's a lot of agency that we can have. And this goes beyond just unplugging your device for a little while. But it, um, there, are, there are things we can do to foster the mental environment that we want. Um, so yes, unplugging your device or leaving it at home and going for a walk in nature without earbuds um, is a great, a great thing to do to, to calm down your system. Uh, reading books on paper instead of on the screen um, has different effects than reading on the screen. Um, and that's, that's very important. It might, be, it might be your instinct to prefer, prefer paper over screen, but there are definite, definite neurologic, uh, psychologic effects um, 
to be had from, from doing one over the other. And so when you start to understand this, the question becomes, um, which, which kind of person do you want to be? Uh, and I think it's very interesting that um, we live in an age when people are starting to ask these questions. Uh, I had a, a doctor in the US email me yesterday out of the blue, um, wanting to have a conversation because he said uh, he and his colleagues have, you know, not being able to see patients as much in person, switched to online consultation. And he's worried um, about the effects that these have. Uh, and for some reason, he reached out to me and wants to talk about it. And, um, these are exactly the conversations we need to be having um, because what kind of people, what kind of society do we want to live in if we have the choice? Um, and I think we have far more choices than we think we have. Yeah, absolutely. I know from, for me personally, I feel much better when I feel like really tired and drained at the end of the day, it means I've been on the computer all day. And the days that I take a lot more breaks and like do other things, I feel so much better. So now I really only try to use the computer like when I'm doing a podcast or when I'm seeing analysis and then like, you know, I actually write by hand and then I type it in and that's like my kind of edited version and then that way it's done. So if I'm like writing something into the computer that I've written by hand, but otherwise and I just check my email and my social media real quick while I'm doing those other things and then that's it. And then I sign back out and leave it off. Cool. Yeah, I do as much um, by hand as I can. Um, for example, you know, I make a lot of notes. <laughs> um, there's a, I have a fascination with manuscripts. You know, we're so far away from handwriting at this point. Um, I, I mail a lot of letters. Everybody who joins uh, my Patreon, I send them a thank you note. I loved getting my letter. Oh, <laughs> that was so nice. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's, you know, when somebody signs up and they give you a dollar a month, it doesn't really make financial set, you know, stamps cost more than that, but, but, you know, I think it, I think it matters. Um, and for myself, I enjoy writing things by hand. Uh, and there's something nice. I love getting mail. You know, I keep hoping, uh, I probably get back 1% for what I put out there. Honestly, uh, I write a lot of letters to people. I just find, um, for example, do you know who Jim Carrey is? Actor? Yeah, Jim Carrey, Canadian actor, lives in LA. Um, he wrote a book recently with a co-author. Uh, and in the front of the book, he has a McLuhan quote. Uh, and uh, somebody pointed this to me. He did an interview on Jimmy Fallon the other day uh, where Jimmy Fallon mentions it. And um, I was amazed by this because the quote is, um, a man's name is a numbing blow from which he never recovers. And I thought, well, that's not your average McLuhan quote for somebody to bring out, you know, I thought, oh, okay. Jim Carrey's maybe read kind of deeply in McLuhan. That's really cool. So, um, so I looked up and there's uh, a postal address uh, for his mail, uh, fan mail, essentially. Um, so, I mean, you're, it's, it's like throwing a, a note in a bottle into the ocean, right? Um, who knows if anybody's ever going to pick it up? 
but you know, maybe somebody will. So I put it out there. As it turns out, I think I know where he got the quote because um, there's another Canadian writer, uh, Douglas Copeland, who wrote a biography of Marshall McLuhan a couple of years ago. Um, and he leads off the book with that quote as well. So I think that maybe Jim Carrey got it from there. Uh, either way, it's a cool thing. So I wrote him a letter, you know, and uh, I, write, I write letters to all kinds of random people and companies. And honestly, one out of a hundred mail me back. So, but I, I keep mailing them anyway, because I also understand it's, it's hard to write a letter. It really is. Um, I became fascinated with this idea of letter writing some years ago. Uh, this was before you and I were friends on Facebook. Um, and I wanted to do more letter writing. So I, I put out to my Facebook friends. I said, hey, I want to write some letters. Who wants to write letters? And I had 26 people sign up. Um, so I spent about a month writing, um, handwriting uh, different letters to every person. Maybe half of them even wrote one back. Uh, a small percentage of them, of them wrote a second letter back to my response. Um, and I think maybe one person wrote a third letter. So that project, you know, and people have the best intentions, but it's just, it's hard to sit down with pen and paper and write a letter. It's, it's a difficult thing to do. And this, um, you know, you look back, uh, speaking of Marshall McLuhan, he has a book called Letters of Marshall McLuhan. Um, and to look at, look at his written correspondence from, from decades, it's amazing, you know, but it's also something that's, that's gone in our society. Um, and I think you'll find the same way because you write a lot, but um, to write a page by hand takes four or five times or maybe more the time that it takes to type it, okay, to type the same amount. Um, the act of slowing yourself down that much changes uh, what you're writing. It, it changes the way you use language. It, um, I think it forces you, it's hard for me to say, but I think it forces you to um, gather your thoughts in a different way. And it's impossible to say because you can't really write a page on paper and then write the same page uh, on a computer and compare the two because, you know, obviously they're different things, but um, there must be a way to perform that kind of experiment with people, have them write a page or then type a page uh, and compare the two qualitatively to see what the differences might be. Um, in any case, I've taken to that when I, when I write speeches, um, I write them by hand. I certainly write outlines by hand, you know, make notes and kind of arrange them. And then when I want to speed up the process, I'll type it out. But uh, in fact, now I'm even switching to another method, which um, is kind of frightening. But uh, uh, Marshall was in the habit when he delivered speeches, um, you know, there's nothing more boring than reading a script. And that's why I love the way you run this podcast, because um, you didn't send me questions, but you said, let's just talk. And uh, conversation is much more dynamic, much more engaging, has much more chance of coming across interesting things than prepared questions, and worse than prepared questions, prepared answers. Um, so uh, learning from Marshall, what he would do is, uh, you know, because I have a lot of his speech notes, 
and they're often made on the back of an envelope or on hotel stationery where he was giving the talk. He didn't even prepare it before he left home. Um, he would do it the night before or on the airplane, and he'd just make a few notes, you know, this topic, this topic, this topic, this topic, come up with a dozen points. You know, if you know your subject and you're confident, um, a dozen points will get you through 45 minutes or an hour fairly easily. If you're worried about it, maybe make a couple extra in case you, you blank or run out of time. Um, and so I've long wanted to emulate that because it makes for a much more engaging presentation. Uh, the fun thing about giving a talk is speaking with and to an audience. And although they might not be responding the way you and I are, um, they respond in a different way and you respond to them. It's been, uh, I've given a few talks since Corona's happened um, this way, you know, through Zoom or whatever. Uh, and it's not nearly as, as fun. Uh, you have to try hard to imagine people out in front of you. Uh, the fun part about it is that you, you can also imagine you're speaking to the future. Because though I'm speaking to you now at a quarter to two in the afternoon on August, uh, whatever it is, this will go up on the internet and somebody might watch it a year from now and hello future me who's watching this or maybe my kids are watching this. There's, there's some fun to be had in, in playing with that idea of time travel. Uh, I don't think people give that enough credit. But um, so what I'm trying to do now when asked to give a talk is try and do that, make some notes and, and speak from it. And of course, the, the most fun part is the question and answers. That's where I think uh, the most fun happens. But here I am dominating the conversation again, Vanessa. <laughs> That's what I want you to do. It's all about you, this conversation. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, maybe another note on the, the McLuhan Institute. Um, part of the reason there needs to be a McLuhan Institute is that uh, I, Marshall and Eric uh, Marshall liked to call himself an explorer, you know. He said, I don't explain, I explore. And I've been trying to find a Latin translation for that because that should be uh, his motto, you know, on his coat of arms. Uh, I don't explain, I explore. But uh, uh, I think of him as an explorer. And, and more than that, I think of him like a, a polar explorer. You know, they say when you see an iceberg, you only see the top 10%, but there's all this, the majority of the iceberg is under the water that you don't see. Well, Marshall was a little bit like that. He was always making discoveries, um, but again, there were only so many hours in the day, so many days in the week, uh, and he could only ever develop a certain amount of the things he, he came across. So he would shuffle a few of them off um, to other people like Walter Ong or to my father, to Eric. Um, graduate, that's what graduate students are for, right? Um, but he and my father, Eric, left a lot of work uncovered but un unfinished. Um, and one of my reasons for having this McLuhan Institute is to be a place to finish that work. Um, Again, not because I'm interested in creating monuments or, you know, history for history's sake, but the work that they did was so vital um, is because it's timeless. Uh, 
um, it's not it's not based on simply the study of old technologies. It's um, to train us how to study new technologies. And that's where really where the importance lies. Um, one of the more fun ways of doing that is uh, by using the arts in artists. Um, and it, again, it's no coincidence that uh, Marshall McLuhan was a, a teacher of English literature. Um, he used uh, their authors, these artists, um, to understand uh, the society around him and the effects of technologies. Um, he placed so much emphasis on the artist, you know, capital A artist, because the artist is the person in our society who's constantly tuning their perception, constantly looking for the novel, um, new ways of experience, um, and new ways of interpreting that to us. And that's really, um, aside from pretty pictures and, you know, aesthetics, um, that's really the value of art, is to help us understand ourselves. Um, and Marshall, Marshall gave them credit for that. When, when Marshall is said to have predicted uh, the future, he was actually understanding the present and doing that via the arts. Um, you know, sometimes that gives me a bit of a chill, really, because, uh, you know, people will say, oh, Marshall McLuhan, he, he saw what we were dealing with today, but he saw it, you know, 60 years ago. And it's like, no, what he was describing 60 years ago was his present. And the fact that we're seeing it now means that we're seeing what happened 60 years ago. So the disturbing thing to contemplate is that what's happening now that we're not seeing. And this is the reason why we need the arts and the reason why we need McLuhan studies um, to train our own perception and to understand what's happening today. So um, a fun part for the McLuhan Institute is um, to be able to support and use the arts. So, you know, on that day where uh, the big corporate sponsor comes and wants to give me a million dollars, I'll be handing a lot of that out in grants to artists. Um, and my dream for the McLuhan Institute is to be able to have a permanent artist residency that will rotate every two months, ideally. Um, and it can go to anybody studying or working with the effects of technology. This can be in painting, in sculpture, it can be in creative electronics, it can be in poetry, it can be in music. I don't care. Um, as long as you're studying uh, the effects of technology today or tomorrow, speculatively. Um, and at the end of that residency, you have to have something to show for it, something to teach us. Um, so that's how, uh, that's one of the main pillars of the McLuhan Institute that uh, I'm really looking forward to someday being able to, to put out there. That's amazing. Yeah, thanks. I can't wait to see it happen. Well, I've sort of started. Um, so I, I started this thing. Uh, I'm sitting here on what I call the McLuhan Institute satellite. Okay, so uh, this is an image of it here. If you can make it out, you've got Sputnik with um, my little logo, the Winnipigian, hanging from it. Um, Sputnik is, is important in McLuhan studies because um, Marshall, uh, Marshall McLuhan saw uh, that at the moment of Sputnik, 
the world became a global theater in which there are no um, participants, only actors, is, is how he put it. Um, so when the satellite went up, it turned uh, the earth into a stage, all the world's a stage, you know. Uh, and that's a very important demarcation point, 1957 for him. Uh, it was only a few months later that he actually first said the medium is the message. So um, one of the fun things, uh, I, I had a little bit of extra money and this space became available in nearby Wellington. Uh, and so I rented it and um, I, I thought it would be several years before I had an actual McLuhan Institute. So what I thought I would do is operate it as a, a pop-up, um, as a micro McLuhan Institute and um, with a minimum amount of things, be able to go places and give little courses on media theory and McLuhan work and um, talk with people and just kind of do outreach and stuff. So one of the fun ideas I had was I invited artists um, to uh, engage in this thing I call the satellite surprise. And I don't know about over there, but when I was a kid here, you would go into the corner store and in the candy section, there would be little bags that just said surprise and it was like a dollar. Um, and you'd get a little assortment of candy and maybe a toy or a sticker or a temporary tattoo. Um, but the fun was in the surprise. So I thought, how could I replicate that here? So um, I invited artists and designers to um, send me something in the mail. And in return, I would send them a deck of these cards. So the value had to be equal or greater to this deck of cards, which I sell for $130 Canadian, uh, which is, I don't know how many euros. Um, anyway, so, but the point, the point being that uh, it would have to be equal or greater value and um, I wouldn't open the package, but offer it for sale. And I would ask the artist to give um, just a little bit of teaser text about what might be inside and hopefully um, some, you know, noteworthy artists or designers would um, participate so that people would actually buy the things. So I got the first one in here. And here it is. Wow. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a big thing, uh, you know, and um, it's from, a, there's a, a Facebook, he's on Instagram as well. And it goes under the name, the Toronto School of Perception. Um, and it's, it's called, In the Future, Everyone Will Understand Marshall McLuhan for 15 Minutes. Okay. <laughs> uh, and it says it contains an equivalent print of a Toronto School of per, uh, Perception, Determont, limited edition. It includes the 10 Thunder Words of Finnegan's Wake, uh, McLuhan in Pied Piper's All, which is a famous painting by Rene Serra that Marshall had in his, a mural in his Center for Culture and Technology. Um, it features a mask and pirate eye patch, uh, mixed martial arts, and collage portrait of Marshall McLuhan, Marilyn Monroe, and Andy Warhol. Um, and it's for sale for $222.22. <laughs> so, so this is exactly what I was hoping for this kind of engagement. Um, the, only, the only possible downside, and it's really not a downside, is that nobody will buy it. Because, I mean, who's gonna come in here and drop $222 
not knowing really what's inside there. I mean, I wouldn't. Someone uh, who's a McLuhan fan might. Well, um, <laughs> this, this guy's work, like look it up, Toronto School of Perception. His work is just incredible. Uh, I'm really hoping nobody buys this one because I want it pretty badly. <laughs> um, but I, I am expecting uh, some other things from uh, an artist in Germany, Charlie Stein, um, Douglas Copeland is supposed to be sending me something, uh, and a few other people. Uh, I've got some things that I, I only have this space for another four or five weeks, so hopefully they'll come in uh, soon. Um, but, uh, but it's a lot of fun. If anybody's watching this and wants to take part, you can uh, send me an email, uh, andrew at the um, and we can talk about it. And is there anything that you wanted to mention before our hour is completed? Is whatever you're working on now or anything else that you wanted to bring up? Um, I would just, if people are interested, um, so the, the main way I operate the McLuhan Institute right now is through uh, my Twitter feed. Um, I try to use these different channels in the ways that are best suited to them. So the Twitter feed uh, for the McLuhan Institute is full of your pithy McLuhan statement uh, in 144 characters or less. Um, and I try to put on their quotes that are not the everyday. Um, it's usually, if you, if you pay attention to the quotes that are going up, it's what I happen to be reading at the time. Um, and I'm pretty active there. Uh, on Facebook, I have a fairly large community of people. Um, I have a YouTube channel uh, for the McLuhan Institute, which um, is where I park my weekly live um, documentation from the library, um, interviews like this that I have, um, and also I've got quite a lot of audio and other things of Marshall and Eric's, and I'm slowly releasing those on there too, so go over there and, and subscribe. Um, and of course, there's the Patreon page, um, Patreon slash McLuhan, um, where, you know, I'm I don't know about you, but I'm just humbled by the generosity of people. Um, it really, it's so affirming for the work that people put their money where their mouth is. Because honestly, a lot of people say, oh, McClue, McClue, it's so valuable. Uh, you know, I've done, my career is owed to Marsha McClue. But then when it comes to supporting, bringing the work to other people, it's like, you don't hear from them. Um, so I'm really gratified that so many people give what they can there. So um, I'll always appreciate that. And you're helping me bring McLuhan to the masses. Yeah, I love that. I love that because of course he's like really well known in certain circles, but his work, your work, your father's work, this work is this lineage of work is more important than ever and will continue to be even more important in the future as more and more technologies are invented and our day-to-day -day lives just become completely imbued with these things. I mean, they yeah. already are. Agree. Nice, well, thanks for coming on the show. Vanessa, it was such, such a delight to speak with you. Thank you for having me. So much fun. And I really love that talk that you gave. I think it was in May as part of like an Indian university and yeah. on the medium is the message. And that's on YouTube too, I think. So I'm going to link to that so that people can also watch that because that was such a great explanation of specifically like that phrase and all the different kind of 
dynamic meanings behind it and the ways it's used. How is your Twitter me because the medium is a message thing going? <laughs> well, that was just a short run thing and somebody, uh, I forget, <laughs> somebody stumped me on it already. Obviously it's not universal, but um, uh, it is funny. I used, um, I gave a talk at uh, the Media Ecology Association's conference in Toronto two years ago now, I guess. Um, where I attempted to answer the question, why study media? Um, because I gave a workshop like five years ago on the medium is the message. And I was trying to sell it um, to a business friend of mine saying, hey, you know, you should get your employees and come on over and take this workshop. And he said, okay, but why? You know, like what will they get out of it? And to me, he was asking why study media? And I didn't have a ready answer because the answer to me was obvious. Right. That's always the hardest. The obvious question is always the hardest to answer, but then the easiest to understand once you've answered it, right? I realized that the question, why study media, is answered by because the medium is the message. Um, and that simply means that it's because it's the environment uh, of effects that are the consequences of our technologies which is what we have to grapple with um, more than just what you and I are, are talking about right now. Um, so yeah, no, that was a lot of fun for Anant University. And I also just put up one uh, a couple days ago, um, an interview here in this space that uh, I think you saw that on Twitter, um, where I talk, I call it the media ecology gospel, according to Andrew McLuhan, because I really pontificate quite a little bit on on McLuhan studies in the Institute and what media ecology is from a McLuhan perspective. So um, yeah, I really appreciate anybody's interest and support and thank you so much. Yeah, I'll link to all those things and also your personal Twitter feed because your poetry and puns are highly entertaining. <laughs> well, listen, you know, I treat Twitter for me is like a giant fridge that you put sticky pads onto. Uh, I find it's most valuable for that and I'm kind of using it, um, I use it as a way to exercise my linguistic demons um, and to get my puns out there without bothering my family so much. But it's also very helpful because uh, any little random thought that comes along, I'm putting there and it's kind of how I'm writing my first book. So I collect thoughts there and then I expand them into paragraphs and into pages and uh, hopefully I'll find a couple weeks to sit down and write the damn thing sooner than later. I love it. My husband is very punny as well, so I appreciate puns. Well, do my best tomorrow. <laughs> I hope to see you guys sometime soon. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Andrew McLuhan. Please take some time to visit the McLuhan Institute website. You'll find an amazing shop and resources there. And consider supporting the McLuhan Institute at their Patreon, patreon.com forward slash McLuhan. I've also included a link to a discussion that Andrew gave on The Medium is the Message earlier this year. 
So links to these sites and to this discussion are all available in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. vessel for such spirits, and strong dead of both of lineage and of adoption. Symposium, recitation of Shakespearean about society, being kinder to you, me. Then, the two other picks are of the old burrows, declared this the best. Congolese magic is unparalleled. History we have breaks from each other. Believe in any space. So when we re-enter the scene, return or anywhere really, it's fine. The spirits just don't like pee and fuck in the pool. change 
whose object are biological. First rays of movement, physical before we reproduction, and succession which links Thank mm-hmm. you.